Please be seated. I want to thank uh, Chip and the session for giving me another opportunity to preach here. Uh, we enjoy our time here very much, and it's an honor and a privilege. I'm sorry Joyce could not be with me this time. Uh, just kind of a complicated story behind that. But uh, she is back in Nashville, actually in Franklin, where we live. And I want to, uh, a few of you would remember that I'm the one whose daughter had quadruplets. <laughs> Down in New Orleans, they're doing fine. They're a year and a half old, and uh, it's just like watching a miracle over and over, and we're very thankful. Uh, I want to invite you uh, to come to Nashville and come see Covenant Presbyterian Church. Some of us think it's the most beautiful church, certainly one of the most beautiful churches in the South. And if you'll come, I'll give you a personal tour. We have eight pastors, and I'm number eight, and I love being on the bottom. Um, I also work for the PCA and the Denomination Administrative Committee, and I want to thank this church for your support for the Administrative Committee. A lot of folks think that doesn't really matter much, but we got to keep the lights on in the office in Atlanta, folks, so thank you for doing that. And... Um, We'll get right to it now. Joyce and I are teaching a college and career Sunday school class. We've started a new class at the church there in Nashville, about 50 Vanderbilt and Belmont students, and we are having the delight of the time of our lives. I think some folks thought we were a little too old to try this, but we are having a great, great time. And for the past year, I've been teaching on what it means to be a missionary to America. Uh, what does it mean to try to tell the gospel, explain the gospel to our culture, which has gone almost completely pagan and secular? And uh, it's been interesting to analyze what's happening in our culture and then try to uh, know how to answer what is going on. And so I think there could be no better subject for us to think about in a missions conference than to think, first of all, about what is the gospel? A lot of people think the gospel is just receive Jesus, believe in Jesus, and you'll be happy. And you'll uh, have fire insurance, and you'll have purpose and peace and joy in your life, and, and uh, everything will be just right. Well, those are all byproducts of the gospel. I don't think that's really what the gospel is. I'm going to give you a portion of what the gospel is today, maybe give you a better understanding of it, uh, and you can put it together perhaps with what you already know. And I think it's very important that we tell all of the gospel to the culture and the people with whom we are around. Having said that, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to read all that the bulletin says. I'm just going to read beginning at verse 19. Verse, actually, verse 18. <clears throat> Hear now God's word. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'll tell you a true story. Once there were four men who were climbing the difficult face of the Matterhorn. You know what that is. That's that highest peak in the Swiss Alps you always see in photographs. Uh, these men were climbing the Matterhorn. There was a guide, a tourist, a second guide, and a second tourist, and they were all roped together. Uh, they came to an especially difficult part of the climb, and as they did, the lower tourist lost his footing and went sliding over the edge. The sudden pull on the rope carried the lower guide with him, and then he also carried the first tourist along also. And before long, there were three men dangling over a cliff with a vast expanse below them. But the guide, who was experienced and who was on top, knew what to do. He felt the first pull, and he thought maybe they were sliding, and so he took his axe and dug it into the ice as strongly as he could, and then just braced for what was going to be a certain jerk, and it came, and he was able to hold fast. And then the first tourist regained his footing, the, first, the second guide regained his, and then the one on the bottom followed, and they were able then to climb on up and be safe and not lose their lives, as they certainly would have. So it is in this life. As the human race ascended the icy cliffs of life, the first Adam in the garden, literally a person, lost his footing and tumbled headlong over the abyss. He fell into sin. And he pulled the next person and the next person. Eve, and then the children, and then on and on it went. He pulled all of the rest of us, even all of us in this room, over the cliff, as it were, and until God's grace intervened, and by faith we believe and trust in the finished work of Christ alone, we are hanging in deadly peril. But the second Adam, which is what Paul calls Christ in this Romans chapter 5 chapter, the second Adam, even Jesus Christ, kept his footing. He stood fast and in so doing enabled those of his father's choosing to regain the path and press on toward the heavenly city. Now, I'm not advocating that that happens, uh, that, that we are to work our way to heaven or anything like that. I'm saying after we've been regenerated, of course, the primary purpose and meaning and goal of our lives should be to glorify God to seek to be holy and godly and good and gracious and kind and live out the fruit of the Spirit as best we can. How did he do it? How did he accomplish? The text tells us, look at verse 19. The text tells us that he accomplished it by obedience. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. I want us to think about that concept in detail. But before we do, I've got a question for all of you. Where are you right now? Are you over the cliff and enjoying the view so much you don't realize what's about to happen? Or 
Are you seeking to be good and godly and holy and press on to the celestial city? It was John Gerstner who said, anytime you've got at least 25 people gathered in the history of Christianity, you can assume someone is lost. We have more than 25 here today. I want all of you to pay close attention, and we'll come back to that in a while. Okay, the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? I want to tell you there's no more glorious theme in all of the Bible than our Lord's obedience. It has been customary to divide the obedience of Christ into two parts. That's what we're going to do right now. His active obedience and his passive obedience. Let's think first about his active obedience. This refers to his positive fulfillment of all the demands of the Father's will. His positive fulfillment of the law and demands of the law of God. In essence, this is the perfect life that he lived. You see, what I believe we have so often forgotten in our day is that this, too, is important. In evangelical churches, we preach the cross, and that's important, and I'm going to come to that. It's very, of course, extremely important. But there's more to it than the cross. What I'm talking about now is just as important. A perfect life was necessary in addition to the sacrifice on the cross. That, too, was necessary to win salvation for his people. Now, you think with me me in the words of the Bible. He was made of a woman. He was made under the law. That is, he came under it. He submitted himself to it. Uh, You can read more about this, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Hebrews chapter 5, verses chapter 5 verse 8 now I really want you to look those up you know when I grew up I used to hear a preacher say well when you go home this afternoon you can you can read this part and I would think yeah I don't know that I'll get around to that preacher but anyway uh, I really hope you will look that up he who had helped make the law with the father put himself under it in order to save us to redeem us The law had to be satisfied. The law had to be honored. The law had to be fulfilled. It had to be, and and the Father had to be vindicated. And so having come to the earth to redeem men under the curse of the law, he gave an active obedience. There's no better illustration of this than what happened when his baptism occurred. Now you remember that it's in Matthew 3, 13 to 15. This is another one I want you to check out closely. Because what I'm going to tell you right now is going to surprise you. He comes to John the Baptist and says, John, I need to be baptized by you. I need to be baptized. And John says, wait a minute, hold it. You got this mixed up. Uh, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. And then Jesus said, no, John, just go ahead and baptize me now. And the key wording in that text is, in order to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus was saying is, John, baptize me in order to keep the law. What law? 
The Old Testament law that referred to his family background, the Old Testament law that referred to, in, in the book of Numbers, I think it's chapter 8, that referred to his age. It is no mistake that Jesus began his ministry when he was 30. Part of that, I think, was to show us that you need to be mature when you're going to be a leader in the church, but also to fulfill the law. And surprise, surprise, the Old Testament law said when a man was ordained into the priesthood, he was sprinkled. You read it. Now, please don't get offended at this. We live in the South. This is a Baptist world we live in. Pull up a rock and eight Baptists run out. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> uh, they have a hard time explaining right there that Jesus wasn't sprinkled. Um, that doesn't have anything to do with uh, the whole text. It's uh, the, the message is just something I've thrown in to make you think a little bit and get your attention now that I've got it. Um, I want you to see the point. The point is that he put himself under the law. He put himself in our position. He is our head and representative. The law is there. The law demands to be kept. And he kept it, and he never failed in a jot or, jot or tittle. He wore a fourfold tunic, fulfilling the Old Testament law. He was circumcised on the proper day. He was in the temple when he was 12 years old. He clicks off every single one of them. Not one time did he ever blow it. Not one time did he ever back talk to his parents in a wrong way. Not one time did he ever blaspheme the Father. Not one time did he ever covet. Not one time did he ever lust after a woman improperly. Not one, and on and on we could go. He lived a perfect life. He rendered a full and perfect obedience to God's holy law. And that had to be done in order to secure our salvation. In a sense, in a sense, the death on the cross would have only been half enough had he not been a perfect person. Now, I, I don't mean that literally in a way, but, it, but both are necessary. J. Gresham Machen. I've learned how to pronounce that second name. Is a man who had roots, was a man who had roots in this church and in this city. His grandfather was the mayor of this town. They lived, their family home was the 1842 Inn. His grandfather was clerk of session in this church for 40 years. Very prominent. I'll speed this up and say that his grandson was named, he, that was John Gresham Machen, and his grandson was known as, was known as Gresham, J. Gresham Machen. J. Gresham Machen was a giant in Protestantism, in Presbyterianism, in the theological world, in the first third of the 20th century. He was a professor at Princeton, and uh, when Princeton began to decline in the 20s, the late 20s, he left, and with the graciousness of the Machen money, was able to found Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And uh, he wrote a book that is still extant and very, very important, and you ought to read it. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. Very significant book. He was a, a theological and spiritual giant in America. Affected all of Protestantism all over the world. And his roots are right here. 
Unfortunately, Machen died in 1936 in South Dakota. He had pneumonia. Uh, he had never married. He was preaching in South Dakota. On his deathbed, he knew the end was near. <clears throat> he sent, a, the best way to, tell, to communicate back in those days was by telegram. He sent a telegram back to his colleague at Westminster Seminary, a young Scot by the name of John Murray. And in that telegram, this is what Machen said. Thank God for the obedience of Christ. Without it, no hope. Do you get the point? He knew how important this perfect life, active obedience of Christ was. Without it, we wouldn't make it. Okay, that's the active obedience of Christ. Now let's come to the passive obedience of Christ. Well, I want to say one other thing about that active obedience. What's so wonderful about it is that Jesus Christ enjoyed being obedient. It was his delight. It was his joy. Oh my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. I delight to do thy holy will. It was his meat and banquet. It was that which he loved. And so I have to ask you a second question. Do you love being good and godly and holy? Is that a pleasure for you? Is that something in which you delight? Young people, do you love honoring your parents? Do you delight in loving your neighbor as yourself? Do you love the Sabbath? Can you say with the psalmist, Oh, how love I thy law. Well, we're told over and over to be imitators of Christ. Do you want to be like Jesus? And you should if you have been redeemed by him. If you want to be Christ-like, then you should love to be good and godly and holy and love to be obedient. Now, let's talk about the passive obedience. That was active obedience. Let's talk about the passive obedience. What does that mean? Well, it's not the positive demands, keeping the positive demands of, of the law of God that Christ has fulfilled. Now we're talking about the penal demands of the law. This involves in making a perfect sacrifice as the ground for the remission of our sins. This involves the expiation or the covering over of our guilt and sin. This involves the propitiation or the covering over and receiving the wrath of God due our sins. Active obedience had positively earned a righteousness that Adam had forfeited in the garden. Passive obedience met the requirements of God against the sinner. Now the best illustration of this I know is in Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And we read that passage and we, we read it like this. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not thy will, but mine be done. And we read it incorrectly. You need to read it. Father, if, this, if it be possible, let this, uh, let this pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Pause. I believe he did. And then, nevertheless, if it's got to be, it's got to be. Nevertheless, thy will be done. My, not my will, but thine be done. What does that mean? It means he was face to face with the terrible decision of having to submit passively to having the sins of man put of men put upon him and bearing their awful punishment. This is the climactic point in history. Go with me now, please, 
to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 33. Mark 14, verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. I want to emphasize that, distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then I think long pause. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And I want to say, if you are a Christian, and name the name of Christ, and that passage doesn't get to you a little bit, something's wrong. Because here is Jesus Christ, Son of God, very God of very God, worker of amazing miracles, creator of the world, according to John. The terrain here in this county was shaped by Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus Christ, and what is the text telling us? It is telling us that he was frustrated. He was flustered. He was upset. And you know why? Because what was happening is this. He was looking into the abyss of damnation through which he was about to pass. The abyss of the Father's awful, unrelieved, unmitigated, terrible judgment upon our sins. Not his, he was perfect. He knew he was fixing to have to go in the valley and take the whipping for us. And the abyss of the damnation that was already beginning to inundate his soul was getting to him. And he looked at it, and for just a little while he recalled and backed up with horror and dread and said, I don't want to do this. For a minute he said, oh, Father, and the word, you know the word Abba there means Daddy. He said, oh, Father, Daddy, isn't there any other way to do this? Can't I get out of this? And then he says, if, if not, I'm going on. And he did it. And the Bible says that he went as a lamb to the slaughter. And he didn't resist. He didn't object and our sins were laid upon him and he bore them. And he bore the pain and suffering of our punishment. And he made the atonement and he endured the wrath of God against our sin. And that is his passive obedience. So you see, he was perfectly obedient. His obedience was active, perfect life. His obedience was passive going to the cross and taking what we deserve. And it is, that's exactly what Paul is saying in verse 19 of Romans 5. And that produced our salvation. 
as we are declared righteous by the Father because of his righteousness that's put to our account. So when a person becomes a Christian, it's more than just, oh, I believe Jesus was the Son of God and I believe he was the Savior. And I, and I, I think, you know, I believe in Jesus. I've trusted him. I've asked him into my heart. All that may be fine, but the point is, Presbyterians have always said we believe in coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. We believe that he saves us, but we have some understanding of it too. And do you understand that his perfect life earned a righteousness that covers you over? And when God looks at you, that's what he sees if you're his because of what Jesus did. And the instrumentality that produces that is faith, which is also a gift. But we exercise our faith, and in God's grace, we're born again. Now, I know I've got a closing story I want to tell you. And I've used this here before, I'm almost certain. But it's so apropos, I want to use it again. But as I do, to make sure that we don't miss the point, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. Isaiah 61 verse 10. This is what it says. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. I want you to remember that phrase. He has clothed me and covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, here's the story. When I was in seminary, I heard this story. Some of you will know this name. John Neville was pastor and First Presbyterian Church of Hendersonville, South Carolina for a long time. He's in his 80s now, which is just mind-boggling to me. Uh, I heard John Neville tell this. He said that uh, he discovered something as he was a pastor that I've discovered, that Chip has discovered, and, and every other pastor discovers sooner or later. People, as they get older, don't like to talk about dying. We can talk about the weather. We can talk about SEC football. We can talk about what's happening in the news, what's happening in Washington, but don't talk about dying. We just kind of put that off out of our minds. His father had been a pastor too, and his father was in a nursing home in Clinton, South Carolina, and he went to visit his father. And he said, Daddy, I've discovered people don't like to talk about dying. Uh, Daddy, do you ever think about dying? And he said, his daddy looked him right in the eye and said, Son, I think about it all the time. He says, Daddy, what do you think about? He said, Well, son, do you remember when I was pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Union, South Carolina? And John said, Of course I do, Daddy. That's where I grew up. He said, Well, one time when I was pastor there, somebody in the church gave some money for me to have a new suit of clothes. And he said, so we went down to the fair store, which is on Main Street in Union, South Carolina. And he says, we walked in, your mother was with me, and she said, we're looking for a suit for, 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 for his father. And so the man came and got a suit, and she looked at it and said, nope, that won't do. 
So the man went back to the rack and he got another suit and he brought it up and says, what about this one? And she said, no, that one won't do either. The man, the salesman was a little perplexed and she said, would you pick out the most expensive and best suit in this store? And the man certainly. And so he said, he brought the suit. He said, his, his uh, mother said, now try it on. So he tried it on, put it on. And she said, now walk outside on the street in the sunlight. Walked out in the sunlight, and she said, now, turn around. And he said, I turned around. And she said, that's it. He said, now that, she said, now that is a suit that is befitting of the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Union, South Carolina. And he said, you know what, son? That day, I really felt like I was somebody. And he said, you know what I think about when I think about dying? He said, I think about being covered over with the robes of the righteousness of Christ. Just like Isaiah's talking about here. And he said, you know what, son? When that happens, I really will be somebody. That is the gospel. There's no better news than that. And so I close with this. Are you covered? Do you have the robes of the righteousness of Christ? And if you don't have them, I encourage you to get them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, if I've spoken words that are true, may they not be forgotten. For those here who know they don't have those robes, may they not rest until they get them. May they seek you with all their heart. Father, please understand how grateful we are for giving us truth about what you've done for us. Thank you. And we pray in your strong name. Amen. Let's stand now for the benediction.